everyone and welcome to the first in our new series of de-risking podcasts. I'm Rachel Pinto, a partner here at Herbert Smith Freehills and the pensions team and I'm delighted to be joined today by Rosie Phantom, a partner at Barnett Waddingham and Matt Richards, Senior Business Development Manager at Standard Life. Many of our listeners will be aware that there are a number of decisions for schemes to make when they're thinking about approaching the insurance buyout market. One of those is whether to insure all of a scheme's liabilities in a single transaction or to do a series of buy-in transactions over time. Rosie, maybe you could give us your thoughts on why a scheme might decide to go for multiple transactions rather than a single transaction. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me to talk today. So to answer your question, this is in the first instance largely about affordability. Most trustees and sponsors would typically insure all of their liabilities in one go if they could afford to do so. But that isn't where many DB schemes are. At the moment, schemes are looking at kind of what their end game might look like and trying to work out when they might be able to fully insure their liabilities, the timescales for potentially doing this, and then starting to think about whether a partial transaction, so not ensuring all of their liabilities, but only some of their liabilities, might actually be able to help them take some risk off the table earlier in their scheme's journey, and ultimately be able to help them to reach that end game where everything is insured. And it's probably fair for me to point out that this is really the domain of the kind of medium and larger schemes in that you need to have a a significant amount of liabilities to really make this partial transaction approach work and make sense. And we can see that doing a sequence of buy-ins, for example, can actually help schemes to reach that point of being fully insured. And I guess I have a question for Matt here, just to sort of add some sense of what you see in terms of the cases that are actually approaching the market at the moment. Hi both, and thanks very much. And that's a, that's a good question. In the market generally, we're seeing at the moment that those schemes that come towards insurance for a full buyout are those that are either being bought out as part of wider corporate activity, or unfortunately, those cases that are going through the PPF and therefore forced to transact. It's not actually that common that we see schemes coming forward for buyout just because they're fully funded, but that is changing over time. Affordability and pricing are both helping those and they're on the rise but it's not necessarily going to be a step change that we suddenly see lots of schemes coming forward to complete a single transaction. We do also see in the market that some schemes, as you say, Rosie, in the larger end of the spectrum are trying to tranche up their liabilities to create appetite within the insurance market to complete transactions. Thanks, Matt. So if we put affordability to one side, Why would you do a staggered approach? Would another option just be to potentially wait and and just do a single transaction once you're in that position? Absolutely, Rachel. And that is something that we are actively talking to different clients about. And you do see that, that different clients have different views on this. I think first and foremost, it's really an investment decision. That partial buy-in policy just acts as an investment of the scheme. It's an asset at the end of the day. And it's one that is very useful as it can be used to precisely match the liabilities that it covers. But it's worth thinking about how that partial buy-in or that partial transaction will fit into the scheme's wider investment strategy. 
How does the buy-in change the expected return on the scheme's assets, for example? How does it help the scheme to control its risks? And there are other considerations that might mean that a partial transaction is advantageous. For example, the sponsor's views on risk and any associated accounting treatment. But there's also some considerations around how you attract competition and how you get insurers' attention in a busy marketplace. I guess, Matt, you might be able to uh, help us see how insurers might consider potential cases approaching the market. Yeah, thanks, Rosie. So to give a bit of context for those listeners that don't know about the market itself, there are broadly eight insurers that are looking at providing transactions for pension schemes. Now, those eight insurers will have different sweet spots within the market. That may be based on size or it may be based on the profile of liabilities they're looking to ensure, whether that's pensioner only or full scheme. So those that you're looking to attract will need to be considered when you're working out which transaction to bring to market. So speaking from Standard Life's perspective, we focus on the whole of the market. So we're quite happy to quote on deals of pretty much all shape and sizes. So if we think about how our proposition has changed, that also helps to think about how the market is changing. So over the last 18 months, we've significantly changed the proposition that we provide. Historically, we'd only really looked at complete pensioner transactions, but over the last 18 months, we set out to complete full screen transactions, which we did with a couple that were announced last year. Normally, we'd also look to quote on anything above 100 million in size, but we're also looking to change that. And we're continuing to scale up our operation by recruiting and make sure we can continue to deliver across the whole of the market. So you will need to think about which insurers you want to attract to your transaction when you're thinking about coming to the market. In terms of making a proposition attractive to insurers, there's a number of things that we would be looking for. It's mostly about trustee preparedness. We're wanting to think about have trustees considered affordability? Have they taken the time to do some data work and cleansing? A good example of this is we're looking for about 95% or more of postcodes being complete. That's a good marker generally to see how the data is looking. We also want to know whether the schemes had a legal review of their benefit specification and have they considered how to codify or crystallise any unusual benefits or discretions. So that's in terms of data and benefits, but also really crucial is has the scheme got the right governance in place to approve a transaction if and when everything else comes together? Interestingly, we're actually now seeing an increase of schemes coming forward to complete the last stages of their tranched approach. So this approach of taking groups of liabilities over time has been happening for a while. And historically, we've seen it was oldest pensioners moving down to younger pensioners and so on and taking the smallest liabilities at a time. But that's left behind a number of liabilities that are much longer in duration, so with younger members. So we're looking to see how the market's going to develop to react to that as more heavily deferred cases come to market. Ultimately, in terms of the transactions we look at, we don't really mind what we're going to ensure. We just want to understand the journey that the trustees are going on with their advisors and those that are most prepared will get the most most attention from the insurers in the market. Thanks, Matt. So I think um, some really good points that I, I totally agree with there. I mean, looking at it from the work that we as legal advisors would be helping trustees with to prepare to approach the insurance market, 
I think you're absolutely right that two of the really key things are making sure that the benefit spec is prepared and making sure that any potential issues have been ironed out at as early a stage as possible. So, for example, there could be little discrepancies um, that you find between what you do in practice and the strict position under your scheme rules. You need to make sure that those are sorted out. And then the other big one, as you say, is looking at the discretions that you may have under your scheme rules and thinking about how you will be able to codify those. And that's a process that will involve the trustees, of course, but may also need to involve the sponsoring employer. So you need to make sure that you've got engagement from them. As you say, from a governance perspective, you also need to make sure that as trustees, you have the power under your scheme rules to do the transaction. So that might require an amendment to your scheme rules. From a funding perspective, if you need additional funding to enter into the transaction, you need to make sure that you are clear where that's coming from, when it's coming, and depending on the circumstances of the employer, you may want to make sure that that's nailed down in an enforceable agreement. Then you'll also need to think about the contractual terms that will be important for your scheme and make sure that the insurers that you're approaching will be able to accommodate those. And they could be things that are around, for example, timing, timing of moving to buyout potentially, the premium payment mechanism, any unusual benefits that you need to make sure the insurer can deal with. So a lot to think about. So Rosie, how, how do trustees ultimately decide then which liabilities to insure? This question tends to follow from those kind of strategic principles to understand whether a partial transaction helps the scheme towards buyout. And then one of the next questions we typically look at is around size. How big should the deal be? And again, this comes back really to the investment strategy and to think about how much money can be extracted from the investment strategy. And it connects to those, you know, expected return, um, risk transfer type questions as well. So once we've identified a kind of target size of transaction, we then start to look at which liabilities could be in scope. I think, as Matt said, this has typically been in the in the past for schemes to looking at insuring you know, pensioner only liabilities and in particular the older pensioners. Now, these older liabilities with shorter durations can look comparatively cheap to insure. But that's because the inherent risk is lower, which is coming through in the insurer pricing. And these sorts of dynamics need to feed into your assessment metrics and ultimately your decisions around which liabilities should you insure at what point. And I think this is where there's an interaction here. What you might like to do in terms of your risk transfer can work one particular way, but you need to then think about what might the insurers uh, view that with um, through their lens and then start to think about, OK, well, should I be adjusting what I want to take to market to make sure that I'm putting something out there that's going to get lots of engagement but to the extent that that still meets my objectives, but just moderating what I try to do slightly just in light of where the market's at. And then I think this, the second point here, which is is slightly more nuanced, is it's not just about thinking about the immediate buy-in transaction that you're looking at doing, but it's also important to look ahead. Think about the time horizon that you're likely to have towards buyout, and then thinking about what your residual liabilities might look like at the point when you ultimately like to get there. 
So, for example, we would help teams to understand what that liability mix might look like at the point where they're likely to get to buy out and starting to use that to inform what they might want to ensure now so that you don't end up at that point of wanting to do the final transaction and then actually finding that you're really struggling to get engagement from the market for that subsequent deal. And I guess what we are also seeing is that historically it's all been about pensioner buy-ins but actually, as more and more schemes do approach the market with deferred liabilities, the insurers themselves are working out how to improve pricing for deferreds. And I guess this is a natural question where I can probably um, use Matt's knowledge here in terms of what you're seeing insurers are doing to be able to help the pricing of those deferred liabilities. So you're quite right that pricing has traditionally been most aggressive on pensioner-only transactions. So if we step through what's causing that first. So pensioner pricing is simpler. The liabilities are more certain. For example, there's less member options and they're already in payment. And they're almost certainly always reinsured. And based on that, the capital requirements for the insurers are lower. So broadly in these cases, when schemes come to market, they're actually looking to see which insurer can procure the best assets and reinsurance to back the transaction. Now, the reinsurance will generally be across the whole of the market, so it does often come down to the asset strategy of the deal. For pensioner-only transactions, durations say 12 to 14 years, this generally means a lot of liquid credit, and this is a very well-established market. As we look at longer duration deals, and again, we're talking about that in terms of deferred members and younger members, insurers need to source longer dated, secure, high yielding assets. Now, that can sometimes sound like a paradox, but as very long term investors, insurers are able to accept lower liquidity in exchange for a higher return. And the expansion and use of these type of assets within the insurance market has assisted in the development of pricing of these longer dated liabilities. Reinsurance also plays a big part in the management of these liabilities in the Solvency II world. And the reinsurance of deferred members is becoming more common and more commonly offered by reinsurers as they look to expand their exposure to annuities to diversify against their life insurance products. So it's the combination of these two areas, particularly that are allowing us to see more aggressive pricing in the deferred space. Thanks, Matt. Um, I think uh, a further question um, for, for both of you, but maybe we'll start with Rosie. What are your thoughts, Rosie, on accessing residual risk cover, particularly where there's a strategy to try to complete multiple buy-ins on the journey towards buyout? Thanks, Rachel. So it might just help if I just, just take a moment just to explain what we mean by residual risk cover. So most bulk annuity transactions involve the transfer of the insurer taking on liabilities relative to a transaction data set and a benefit specification. But what a residual risk cover does is it can provide an additional level of cover that says actually if there's errors or mistakes or things wrong with that data and benefit statements, then the insurer is, can take on the risk of effectively of, of those things being wrong. And also they can provide cover in respect of missing beneficiaries. And this cover typically kicks in after the scheme has wound up. And this isn't something that's required by all schemes. In fact, it's usually quite a few and far between, and it's typically the domain of the larger end of the market. 
And this does tend to have something to do with the schemes and sponsor circumstances as to whether this is a focus and you know, the, 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 the exact nature of the residual risk cover that you need. So when we're thinking about should a scheme do a partial transaction or not, it is always important to have one eye on the future as to you might not need this now, but it could be something that you really do want in that kind of final point of wanting to be able to wind the scheme up. And I think where schemes have got multiple buy-ins, it is harder to access this cover in a comprehensive way. If you've got multiple insurers, um, yeah, getting this cover to sort of stitch together um, so that you don't have um, obvious gaps is, is can be more challenging. That said, the volume of buy-ins that we've seen in the past, so partial transactions, there's been a significant market here. Lots and lots of schemes have these. And I do think there will be demand from the insurance market to find solutions um, which will ultimately drive innovation in this area. So I think to answer your question, Rachel, it is going to be a challenge. I think there are ways of navigating it and I would be interested to, to see what Matt's views on this are as well. But I think just to say that, yeah, it, it is an evolving feast, I think is, is probably the best uh, information I can give. Thanks, Rosie. I, I agree with all of that. And uh, one point I would add just in, in relation to what we were talking about before on, on being prepared, I'd say that it's really important that trustees really understand that the process of entering into residual risk policy is a significant exercise. Insurers will generally want to do full due diligence on the whole history of the scheme. And so it's important that trustees together with their advisors are prepared for that and that they've conducted a search for all of the relevant documents so that they can disclose those to the insurer, which will avoid delays, hopefully, in, in transacting on that kind of a deal. Matt, can you get your thoughts on this as well? So if we think about the schemes that have traditionally come forward for residual risk cover, it tends to be those that are doing a full buyout. And so that's been quite straightforward. It's all of the risks under one roof and being completed in a single transaction. When we talk about schemes that have done multiple tranches over time, it can be quite simple to do residual risks based on that, again, being in force after the point of buyout. But this tends to need to be if you've got all of the tranches with one insurer. And so in that case, most insurers, and we certainly are happy to provide residual risk proposal in that tranche buying scenario. The complexity is going to arise when you've got tranches with multiple insurers. So I don't think it's impossible, but it's definitely not a certainty yet. From an insurer perspective, there are grey areas created around which insurer would take which risks, and this needs careful consideration. This is more so in the case where you've got member benefits that are not completely covered by one insurer. This only really tends to happen where you've got a historic partial buy-in that was you know, traditionally set out to be only flat pension increases, and so future increases may sit with a different insurer. But also you do need to think about, for example, quite a simple point to think about is which insurer would be asked to take missing beneficiary risk cover? So you need to think about how you structure it. And I think Rosie's point about while you think about bringing tranches to market, you really want to have one eye on the future of what your long term goal might be and whether you might want to have this risk covered at some point. 
Thanks, Matt. So I agree. Um, you know, as you say, there can be some difficult issues to think through where there are multiple tranches and even more so where there are different insurers involved as well. So, for example, an insurer, if you've got a residual risk policy, generally won't want trustees to be reviewing scheme documents and potentially taking different views about benefit structure after the transaction has um, has signed, because that will obviously pose a risk potentially to the insurer if they when they've taken a risk of um, uplifting benefits if the initial benefits insured are, are incorrect but that can be difficult for trustees to agree to where you've got an ongoing scheme where not all of the benefits are insured as yet and then where multiple insurers are involved trustees will generally want to have similar terms between each of those contracts so for example they don't want to be under an obligation to do something under one contract for example review certain benefits tidy them up where that might put them in breach of something under another contract so there's always a lot to think about on on these sorts of transactions and more so where you've got multiple parties involved and multiple tranches involved I'd like to say thank you to both of you for joining us for what's been a really interesting discussion. Um, it's been really good to get your thoughts on a range of topics relating to, to multiple tranches versus a single buyout. And thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you, Rachel, for inviting me to join you today. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thanks very much both. Take care.